Oh, good morning. So good to be with you here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, now would be a great time to take it out. I don't care what kind of Bible it is. Hardcover or softcover or electronic or whatever you got. And here's the deal. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you look in the pew there in front of you, there ought to be one, a pew Bible. And guess what? You're a winner. Probably looks like this. Take that home with you. That's your prize for being here today. We want you to have a copy of the Bible so you can be looking at that throughout the week, not just when we're here together. If you've been with us, you know we're working through the Apostles Paul's letter to the church in Galatia. It's taken us three months to finish these first two chapters. That's what happens when you walk through the Bible and you study it together. But we're in a little too far for me to give a, a review of what we've already covered up to this point in time. So if you've missed something, go to the website. You go to the chapel website at www.katebiblechapel.org. Lots of neat stuff on there. But you can hear the sermon series. I know there's some people who go like on Netflix and like binge watch an entire you know, series on TV show. You could do that with this sermon if you want. Just binge listen to the series on Galatians. It's perfectly acceptable with us. The series is about understanding grace. That's what we've been talking about. How to understand grace. And last week, Paul kind of talked specifically about how do we view grace and the law. What's the relationship between those two things? We said earlier that grace is God's favor that we cannot earn. It resulted in Him sending His Son in order to provide the way, the offer of salvation for us, for anybody who puts their faith in Him. And we said God's grace comes from His mercy, His love. It's set free on the cross. He died in sinful man's place. He died in my place. And now Paul's writing this letter, and he's dealing with some folks who really struggle with the true gospel being full of grace. They wrestle with the reality of that. The idea that the good news that Jesus Christ involves sinful people who can't earn salvation, and he lets them make a trade with the God of the universe where we give him our sinfulness that requires consequences, and what we get is Christ's sinless perfection. That's hard for some people to gather. People will look at that and they'll think, man, that's one of those deals that just seems too good to be true. You've probably seen those late night infomercials. You see, oh, that seems too good to be true. But I tell you what, I've researched this one and it's legit. It's not too good to be true. But it is hard to fathom. And so I think that leads to some struggles people will have. And Paul addresses a couple primary ones. And the very first one he addresses is, well, that doesn't sound fair. The offer of salvation by grace through faith in Christ That's a bad trade for God. We better sweeten the deal for him a little bit. We better come along and try and add something to faith so that it's an even trade. You know, if we really believe that grace gets rid of having to keep the law, well, maybe what we should do, you know, is look at that a little differently. Because God's law, that's that's holy and divine. It's good, right? So I'll tell you what we should do. Maybe we should try and find a way to supplement just a little bit faith. You know what this is? Can't see it from here. This is fish oil. From what I understand, eating fish is supposed to be really good for you. It must make you like bionic or something like that. I don't know. But, but, but the idea, the problem that I have with fish, the problem a lot of have, people have with fish, is that it tastes like fish. And, um, <laughs> and so, you know, not everybody gets that. You know, I like some kind of fish. I like fried fish. But I think when you fry it, you must get rid of the fish oil. I don't know. There's a lot of really smart people, my wife included, who say, hey, if you're not going to eat fish, then you should supplement your diet with fish oil. This is just liquid. You eat it by the tablespoon. And, and my kids say it tastes a little like women. 
I say it tastes a little like fish, and so I really still don't like it. But in Paul's day, the Judaizers were coming along, and this is what they had. They were going to make law-keeping their fish oil. Oh, shoot, you can be healthy by believing in that thing Paul's talking about, but it would be better if you'd supplement it with some strict obedience to the law. That would be a better thing. So that's one of these false gospels, these distortions that Paul deals with. Then the other one that he addresses real clearly is this notion that, well, you don't really have to, to earn it, but if you can just have grace to receive salvation, then really you ought to be able to do whatever you want, and it'll be okay because God will just forgive you. It's a big word called licentiousness. basically says the offer of the gospel gives us the license to sin. So when we make that trade with God, God is so big and so nice and so good and so loving, he just wants to forgive you. He doesn't really care what you do. Now, I know that's taking that argument to the extreme, but that's the place we can end up with if we're thinking that way. So to help us understand grace, to truly grasp how amazing it is, Paul deals over and over again with these false gospels. We saw this last week in verses 11 to 15 of chapter 2. Paul gets up in Peter's face because Peter has done something really foolish. He's been a major stumbling block to the church in Antioch. Peter by his actions, was nullifying grace. We know Paul doesn't stand for that. So he publicly rebukes Peter. Here's what he says, Peter, you know better. You know that no one can perfectly keep the law, not even the Jews, who on the surface had some kind of advantage over the Gentiles, who were the non-Jewish people. See, the Jewish people knew the law. It was given to them by God. They had the prophets. They had the covenants. They'd gotten all the signs. Gentiles didn't get any of that stuff. But that's important to Paul's argument because he's saying that stuff doesn't matter. There's nobody, there's no sinful person on this planet who can perfectly keep the law. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or non-Jew. You can't do it. And if we really wrestle with that and we really try to grasp that and we think, could I do that? Could I perfectly keep the law 100% of the time? It'll just make your head swim. If you lived back in Paul's day, there were a lot of laws to keep. I mean, I I think we understand God gives us the Ten Commandments. Maybe that seems hard enough. I'd say good luck trying to obey those. But maybe that seemed too easy. So in Paul's day, the Pharisees of the first century, they scoured through the Torah, and they came up with a list of 613 commandments that you needed to keep. There were 248 positive ones, do this kind of commandments. There were 365 negative ones. Don't do that. One for every day of the year. Yeah, good luck being a law keeper unto salvation. You can't do it. And this is why we need to get a handle on grace because we still struggle with this today. It leads to a question, and I've heard variations of this question many times, and you probably have too, where you say, okay, let me get this. If I obey the law too rigorously, then I'm a legalist. But but if I obey the law too loosely then I'm a sinner. So what do I do? How do I know what to do? And if that's the question we're asking, we're asking the wrong question. (laughs) It just goes to show we still don't understand grace. I mean, I don't want to get smart enough to figure out how to keep the law all the time. I won't be able to do it. I don't want to get a degree in sin management and walk around all day focusing on, okay, i got to do this, but I can't do that. I just want to live my life sold out to God. I want to live my life led by the Holy Spirit. That seems better. 
And it seems better to Paul. Because he takes Peter to task for confusing people about this idea of grace versus law-keeping. So we'll start in verse 16 of chapter 2 there in Galatians. We're going to see Paul build off of this rebuke that he started last week. Where he says, hey, Peter, it's foolish to say Jews are moral, but Gentiles are sinners. Because we're going to see when it comes to justification, this big term we introduced last week, we're going to explain it today. He says, when it comes to that, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. Here's what Paul writes in verse 16. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but how? But through faith in Christ Jesus, he says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus. Why? So that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. He repeats that a lot in there. And sometimes we do that. We repeat something so people will really pay attention. If you ever talk to a realtor and they say, what are the three most important things in realty? Well, they say, location, location, location. A couple of viral videos that I really like. They're funny. If you're a sports fan, Allen Iverson one time goes off on this huge rant about practice. Somebody in the press conference asked him about practice. And then he says practice like 36 times in two minutes. Practice? You're talking about practice, not the game. Practice. The great one was Jim Mora. He coached the Indianapolis Colts, and they lose a big game late in the season. And one of the reporters has the audacity to ask him about making the playoffs. Have you seen that one? And he says playoffs like 50 times. Playoffs? <laughs> We're not going to the playoffs. You know, that's what he's trying to do. He's repeating that word because that's important. We need to pay attention to what's going on there. Well, that's what Paul does here. He mentions justifications three times in this verse alone, and every time he mentions it, he says you can't keep the law for it. Law keeping's not grounds for justification. Now, what does that term mean? Where does that come from? Paul introduces this term because it's a legal term. And what it means is to declare righteous. Justification is to legally declare righteous. And now, if that's a legal term, what's the opposite of it? It'd be to condemn. So Paul's painting the clearest possible picture he can that the Judaizers are wrong. You can't come along and supplement faith with works to be declared righteous. You can just figure that out in your own head. If you let that play out, you think, okay, if I have to keep the law to be righteous, then if I mess up, even in one little thing, I'd be the opposite of righteous, which is condemned. And that should sound a little scary. And that's what Paul's trying to get us to see. I don't care if it's 613 laws you have to keep. I don't know if it's 10 laws you have to keep. I know me. I can't keep one law. I'm going to mess this up. There's a real telling encounter that Jesus has with a guy in Scripture who has a lot going for him. The Bible says he's a rich, young ruler. This interaction is recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels. But look with me at the account in Mark chapter 10 verses 19 to 20, and we'll have this on the screen. Because here's where this rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and he asks the question, what do I have to do? If salvation is on me, what do I have to do? What, what do I have to do to earn it? And here's where Jesus tells him. He says, you know the commandments. And he, started, he doesn't try and list all of them, for sure. He just gives some highlights. He starts with the negative ones. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. He throws in one positive one. I appreciate it. Honor your father and mother. And so the rich young ruler said to him, Teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth up. So clearly Jesus should have included do not lie on this list. 
Because <laughs> this guy just told a huge one. The rich young ruler says, okay, I got this. I keep all those. I'm good. And Jesus, being, you know, God, <laughs> has the ability to see his heart. And so he just cuts right to the chase. Cuts to the big issue that the rich young ruler has. And he tells him, okay, go sell all your stuff. Jesus says, go get rid of the thing that you're keeping between you and me. It says in the text, the rich young ruler walks away sad. And so Jesus chases after him, and he says, wait, wait, I've been too harsh. Hey, you're right. What if I compromise the gospel just a little bit so you could maybe try and earn your salvation? No, <laughs> that's not what it says. Because Jesus, just like Paul, is not going to compromise the gospel. It has to be grace, or it's not the gospel. What Jesus is teaching is we can't be good enough. We can't work hard enough to be justified. I don't care if it is just one law. We can't keep it. Look at this exchange Jesus has with another smart guy, Matthew chapter 22 and verses 36 to 40. This guy asks another good question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? If we could boil it all down just to one that I had to keep, what would it be? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. He says, Uh-oh, wait out. <laughs> There's another one. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Jesus says, Okay, okay, let's make it just two that you have to keep. You still think you can do it? I can't 100% keep those all the time. It's not possible. We're sinful people. We live in a sinful world. And without the offer of reconciliation that comes only by grace, we respond with faith, we're going to be eternally in trouble. And that's not what God wants. That's not what he's rooting for. That's why we want you to have a Bible so you can read this thing and understand this incredible love story that God's telling where he loves people so much, he's provided a way for us to be able to have a relationship with him for eternity. If we'll take the trade, if we accept the grace and respond with faith, it won't happen by working for it. And one of the other things Paul makes sure, it won't happen because we're special or because we win some kind of genetic lottery. You're not going to be able to be born into a family that will guarantee you become a Christ follower. Paul's saying it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. Let me say it another way. It wouldn't matter if your parents were missionaries and you were born on the missionary field and they were living in a grass hut in Swaziland and you were born in the grass hut church in Swaziland and you've never looked at pornography and you've never had a drink of alcohol and you're a Cardinal fan. It doesn't matter. Because what if you were the opposite? What's the opposite of missionaries? What if your parents were politicians? That's bad. <laughs> Not trying to offend anybody here. What, what if your parents were carnival workers? What if they worked at the carny? It doesn't matter. What, what if you never knew your parents? What if you grew up in complete debauchery and you dr drink, smoke, and chew, and you date people who do, and you're a Cubs fan? You know? What we're trying to say is it doesn't matter. Trying to offend anybody here. Neither one of those little babies can justify themselves. The kids born to the missionaries, I always think about my kids. What about pastors' kids? My kids have no advantage regarding justification over any other kids. They have advantages growing up in a home where they're loved. 
Sometimes it's tough love. They're cared for. They're fed. But those advantages don't equal salvation. As parents, we've got to understand we can't save our own kids. It's a great line from Matt Chandler, pastor of the Village Church. He talks about raising kids. He says the only thing we can do, the best thing we can do as parents, is to try stack up kindling around our kids and pray that the Holy Spirit just sets it on fire. I love that because it's Jesus that draws people to himself. I can't save my kids. So that's the idea of justification. We can't be justified by keeping the law. We can't memorize enough Scripture to be saved. We can't manage our sin well enough to be declared righteous. There's only one way to be justified. If we don't know it by now, we're not paying attention. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. So in these next two verses, in rebuking Peter, and in response to these different Gospels that Paul's dealing with, Paul's going to try and silence this licentiousness argument. This idea of a false Gospel where we can just do whatever we want, and God will have to forgive us. Look at verses 17 and 18. He says, But if while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. He says, If the law serves its intended purpose, he asks this question, Is Christ then a minister of sin? May it never be. He says, For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. And we talked about this last week. We said that the law is important. Paul's not trying to just throw the law out. We just can't ask it to do more than it was designed to do. We said last week, the law is a diagnostic tool. It shows us where our problems are. It shows us where we fall short. It's a gauge for us where we can see those areas, but the law can't save us. The law is not the cure. We said last week, Jesus is the cure. So Paul intentionally says here, when that diagnostic of the law shows us we're sinners, that's pretty sobering, isn't it? Because that's not something we like to be called. I understand that. And I think Paul does this on purpose to try and get our attention. He calls us sinners, and then he spins it the way that people must have been spinning it at the time. They say, well, if we can't be justified by keeping the law, well, then this grace thing must mean we can live like sinners. We can do whatever we want. And that's about the only way you can really twist that. If you want to lessen the blow of being called a sinner, is try and throw Jesus under the bus too. Yeah, I'm a sinner, but it's because Jesus is the minister of sin. Now, how's that argument going to hold up when you take that back to God's Word? It's not a valid argument at all. Paul points out the diagnosis. He points out the reality of our sin issue, and he doesn't try and hide it. As a matter of fact, he slaps us in the face with it. There are times when we become really blind to our sin. We, we almost become so comfortable in it, we need to get jarred back to reality. This ever happened for you? You ever had somebody love you so much they're willing to confront you over a blind spot area? Or maybe you've had to do it to somebody, had to go to them and point something out. They call them blind spots for a reason. We can't see them. This is what the prophet Nathan does with David in 2 Samuel chapter 12. If you remember that account, David has developed some really serious blind spot issues in his life. Somehow he loses track of the idea that lying and adultery and murder are frowned upon in the Bible. And so Nathan comes to him, and he tells this story. He says there was this rich guy. He had everything. And there was this poor guy, and all he had was one little ewe lamb. This rich guy has a, a guest, a traveler comes by. And instead of slaughtering one of his own herd, he's got so many, he goes and he takes 
The guy's little poor ewe lamb, and he serves it up for dinner. And so God is the one who sends Nathan to confront David here to show him his blind spot. So God gives Nathan this story to tell. And man, it cuts right to the heart of David. He's a former shepherd. And David gets ticked. And he starts tossing around punishments. What needs to happen to a guy who's as mean and nasty and, and vile as this guy is in the story? And when he's done, Nathan stops and he goes, It's you. <laughs> You're the man. And not in a good way. Not in that way, like where you hit a good golf shot and they scream, you're the man! Nathan goes, you're the man with the blind spot. And sometimes we need somebody to love us enough to come tell us that. That's what Paul's doing with Peter here. He's showing him his blind spot. And when Paul shows Peter, there's folks around. There's this public audience. Well, we're the audience today. We're supposed to learn from this and figure out how to apply it. And so what Paul's saying is, if Jesus had come on the scene, not to bring us life and righteousness, but instead, what if he'd showed up with even more laws? I don't think 613 is enough for you. Here's some more. Here's a bunch more laws. Why don't you try and keep these? If that's what Jesus had done, then Paul's saying, you're right. Jesus is not bringing life. He's bringing more sin and more death and more of the opposite of justification. He's bringing condemnation. But that's not what he's coming to do. Paul knows that. He delivers this great line, may it never be. Because Jesus came to be our righteousness. To rescue us from sin and death when we receive his grace. Jesus isn't coming to bring accusation. To say there's no way you can keep all those laws. Jesus is coming to deliver us. He's coming to fulfill the law because he's the only one who can. And so Paul gives this great illustration, and he goes first person there in verse 18. He says, if I rebuild. But I just guarantee he's aiming this at Peter. Because <laughs> Paul's saying, if I rebuild what I've destroyed, then I'm the sinner. It's not Jesus, it's me. Well, Peter's there getting rebuked because this is what he's done. Peter had received grace. He'd responded with faith years ago. He'd torn down the altar of law-keeping unto justification. He'd already done that, but then he disassociates from the Gentile Christians. And he pulls back and he hangs out just with the guys of the circumcision party. And Paul's saying, when you did that, basically what you did was you rebuilt a platform to say, no, you can probably keep the law for justification. So if we look at verses 19 and 20, Paul's already said, may that never be. And he's going to explain it and these verses are just a little tricky because Paul uses this imagery of death and then resurrection to explain the transformation that takes place in our lives, in Christ's followers' lives, after we make the trade. After we trade our sinfulness that requires consequences for Christ's sinless perfection. And it's hard to grasp. It really is. It's that paradox that says if we want to truly live, we've got to die to ourselves. Here's how Paul teaches it in verses 19 and 20. He says, for through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live life to God. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And okay, this is a little tricky. Did Paul just say that through the law, he died to the law? How does that work? <laughs> How does one law kill another law? 
Well, let me try and explain this a little bit if I can. I remember this is years ago when I was on staff with Young Life. I took a bunch of kids to a camp over the summer, Frontier Ranch out in Buena Vista, Colorado, just one of my favorite places to be. And we had like 60 or 70 kids we took, but I had in my cabin these 12 high school guys. Now, I know you guys know high school guys, and they're known for their maturity and their responsibility and their sound decision-making. So one afternoon, we got some free time, and there was this one guy in my cabin I was really praying for, really burdened for him. And I knew for sure, he professed before to me, he didn't know Jesus. And so he comes to me in the middle of the week and says, hey, you want to go talk? I was like, yeah, <laughs> I want to do that. So he goes, let's go play some Frisbee golf and we'll talk. And I was like, great, I'm going to ask him how he's doing with all this. But for me to go, I had to leave all my other guys alone. I thought, how bad could that be? <laughs> it's not going to be bad. I had a student leader there with me. And so I gathered all my guys. And I said, here's the deal. I'm going to go play Frisbee golf. You guys, I don't care what you do but I laid down two rules for him. These are the two rules. I said, have fun and be safe. Now, in my mind, what I was really thinking was, you know, don't fall off the side of the mountain, you know. (laughs) Go Go out and enjoy God's creation, have a good time, but be safe, something like that. Now, while I was gone, one of my high school buddies found, miraculously, in his suitcase, a bag full of water balloons. I don't know how they got there, because I'm sure he didn't pack them, but he found them, you know. And so there they were, and, and I told them to have fun. And they said, boy, it'd be fun. We filled these water balloons up and bombed them at the cabins across the yard. So they filled these water balloons up, and my guys are on the third floor, this beautiful lodge, and they're lobbing these water balloons down. They're having so much fun. Now, amazingly enough, the people in the cabin across the yard, they didn't think it was fun to have the water balloons lobbed at them. And because they weren't fortunate enough to find any water balloons in their luggage, and they wanted to throw something back at my guys, they looked around for the only thing they could find, which was rocks. (laughs) And so now, all of a sudden, my guys are standing on the third floor of the slides, and they're having rocks pelted at them, you know. And and so my guys, you know, they they didn't know they'd cause this big problem. They wanted to retaliate, but being up on the third floor, they didn't have any rocks of their own to throw, so they're looking for something hard that they could throw. And you guys know about my love for Diet Coke. And so what they found was my personal cooler full of 20-ounce bottles of Diet Coke. I'd brought more than enough to cover me for the whole week, and I brought some extras because I'm a generous guy. I was going to give some away. So my high school buddies decided to help me out, and they gave some of my Diet Cokes away to the folks in the yard across the way. (laughs) They grabbed these Diet Cokes, and they're just zigging them, you know, like grenades across the yard. Now, on the bright side, Young Life camps are pretty well organized, and so this, this boiled up pretty quick, but it cooled down pretty quick, too. Some leaders came up, some camp personnel. They pulled my guys down, and they come to get me out playing Frisbee golf. And so I've got to come back, and now I've got to deal with these guys with this fallout. And I remember getting my guys together, and I go to my student leader, and I said, hey, do you remember the two rules that I gave you? They didn't know what I, they didn't know what I was talking about. I was like, do you remember before I left, I told you two things. What were they? I said, have fun and be safe. And they wanted to argue with me about whether have fun was really a rule. I was like, that was a positive rule. That's what I wanted you to do. So, but I, as I give you these two rules, in my mind, one of those has the ability to trump the other one. I'm going to say one of those is more important than the other one. Which one do you think it is? For me, be safe was more important than have fun. Now, throwing the water balloons may have been fun. But when rocks start coming back at you, all of a sudden, it's not as fun anymore. When my precious Diet Cokes are being hurled like grenades, that's just, 
It's not fun for me, and it's not safe. I think in these verses, in 19 and 20, this is what Paul's trying to say. There's a greater law at play here. When the law does what it's supposed to do, when it shows us where we fall short, where we can't perfectly keep the law, if we get that, and then we respond in faith, that trumps everything. Through faith, we can die to the other laws. We can die to the other ordinances. We can die to the other rules. This greater law, this law of faith, it's the thing that sets us free. It allows us to live for God. It doesn't set us free to sin. That's not the idea. It doesn't set us free to do whatever we think we want to do, and God will just forgive us. This sets us free to live for Christ. This becomes really important in application because now Paul starts setting this groundwork for what it really means for us to live for God. I think we struggle with that. So often we hear that and somebody asks us, you know, how are you going to live for God? And we immediately ask, okay, what do I have to do? What rules do I have to keep? What am I going to have to obey to be able to do that? And if we're asking that again, we're asking the wrong questions. (laughs) Because to live for God simply means to have faith. It's this greater law of faith where we'll just want to be in His will. We'll just want to make His name famous. And we won't worry about what we have to do on our own in our own strength. See, God didn't send Jesus to bring some more laws. Hey, Jesus, take some weaker ones. Maybe they'll have a chance at obeying those. He didn't come to try and reform our humanity in some way. God sent Jesus to make a way for us to be rescued and reconciled with him. And the only way to do that is by recognizing we can't keep the law perfectly. So we need to place our faith in Jesus. And if we do that, then, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we can live for Christ. Now, Paul clarifies what he means in verse 19 by using this death and resurrection illustration in verse 20. Because being crucified with Christ is what enabled Paul. It's what enables us to die to the law. See, we're only able to live for God because Christ lives in us, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, to really grasp this, you've got to stick with me. You have to be a Christ follower. And we need to understand that when we begin a relationship with the God of the universe, we are baptized by the Holy Spirit into Jesus Christ and into the church. Now, we don't have time to walk through all this the way Paul teaches this. But on your own, get your Bible and look at that this week. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, confirm that for me. When we profess faith in Christ, we become part of the church. Not the local church. You can join a local church become a member, I think that's wonderful. I'm talking about the church, the body of all true believers in Christ. And when that happens, here's what happens. Believers are united in Christ. We become the body of believers. We share in his death and burial and resurrection. And that's why Paul can write, I've been crucified with Christ. That's the thing that brings to death this notion of keeping the law in order to be declared righteous. That's the thing that produces the change in our lives where we can say, I no longer live. No, we live. You get that. We're all sitting here breathing, right? But if we're part of the true church, then we can say, just like Paul, no, I've been crucified with Christ. It's almost easier to see with Paul because Paul was Saul. Saul was zealous for the law. Saul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was self-centered. He was self-righteous. And Paul's saying, That guy died. 
The law killed that guy because Paul yielded the throne of his life to Jesus. He surrendered it and he got out of his own way. He gave the throne to Jesus. And this is wonderful and it's so important theologically and practically because Paul explains then from this point out, it's not in his own strength that he's going to live for Christ. Now, it's not something weird like, you know, where the Holy Spirit comes in and takes over our body and we're like zombies or robots or we're on autopilot or something. Holy Spirit doesn't make us move or do stuff. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And Paul nails this. He says, okay, if that's the case, then to truly live for God's glory, it's going to take faith. It's faith that releases this divine ability that's inside every Christ follower to actually live the life of a Christ follower. If we would try to live lives that would bring glory to God through our own obedience to the law, and maybe you have tried this, when we do that, when we mess up, what happens? We're defeated. We get demoralized. We get paralyzed. We throw our hands up and we say, it's too hard, I can't do it. We don't have any joy. The law is not a delight for us. On the opposite side of that, what happens when we have faith? What happens when we understand that falling short, being unable to keep the law, it's already been covered in the cross of Jesus Christ. And because we responded to that offer of grace with faith in Christ, now we've received Christ's righteousness. And that's the thing that can carry me. That carries me as I desire to pursue God and love Him more, and serve Him more, and know Him more. And then when I mess up, I'm grieved by the presence of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not defeated because I understand from this verse, God loves me. He gave Himself for me. It's incredible. So we finish this up with verse 21. Paul finishes up his rebuke of Peter. In Galatians 2.21, here's how he finishes. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Now again, Paul is confronting Peter here. Because Peter, by his actions, when he was backing away from the Gentile worshipers, he did nullify God's grace. And so Paul says, if we do that, when Peter did that, when Peter set aside grace, then Jesus died for no purpose. Ouch. <laughs> because God sent his son to take our place on the cross to cover the consequences for our sin so that when we place our faith in him we can be declared righteous we can be justified this is what Paul is teaching over and over again we can't do that on our own we just cannot do that on our own grace does it for us and we can't earn it so the application part is really important as we think about this what does that look like in our lives. And so I was praying and thinking and researching this week, and this weird illustration popped into my head. And this illustration probably shows a couple things. Number one, I'm getting old. And number two is I'm probably too big a sports fan because I, I thought of something from the 1998 NBA All-Star game. 16 years ago, I remember watching this game. I didn't have any kids. I must have had some free time on my hands. In this game, a very young basketball player named Kobe Bryant starting in his very first All-Star game. And the greatest basketball player, hands down, of our generation, Michael Jordan, was playing in what was supposed to be his last All-Star game. 
Now, Michael retired and unretired a few times. I lost count. He did come back and play in a couple more after this. But at this time in 1998, there was all this hype, all this talk about when Michael's retiring and Kobe's going to take the reins of the NBA from Michael. And in this game, I think maybe Kobe felt that was when he was going to do it. He was going to show the planet how great he was. He's, he's the best player. He's going to be anointed the next Michael Jordan. So late in the game, there's just one series. It's very short. But I think it kind of typifies what we're talking about. And so if you're a basketball fan, you'll see it. But if not, I'll kind of talk you through this. I want to show this video of what Kobe does. It's late in the game, and the West Conference All-Stars have the ball. There's Kobe. And Carl Malone comes up there, number 32, and he wants to set a pick for Kobe. And Kobe waves him off. You see the mailman tried to set the pick, and he runs away real quick. We'll walk through it again in slow motion. He comes over to set the pick, and Kobe waves him off, and he says, no, I got this. And so Malone backs off. Kobe wants to take Michael by himself. And he gets off a horrible shot. Jordan's a good defender, and he clanks it and misses it. Here's what happened. I, I, you know, the rest of this I can't guarantee for sure. I speculate. Normally, MVP of the All-Star game comes from a guy on the team that wins. Jordan's team won. But also, many, many times in the All-Star game, the guy who's the MVP is just the guy who scored the most points. doesn't matter if your team won or lost. Jordan won the MVP that year. He scored 23 points. Kobe scored 22 points. Kobe had taken the screen. If Kobe just said, yeah, I'll take the help, and he took around the screen, he had that wide-open jumper, and he'd scored 24 points. Does Kobe win the All-Star Game MVP that year? I don't know. There's no way to know. But here's what I do know. Read some interviews later, and Carl Malone said, yeah, Kobe waved me off. He didn't want the screen. He didn't want any help. He wanted to do it by himself. Had this attitude of, I got this. That's the attitude we need to kill. That's the attitude we need to die for. Because if we want to truly live for Christ, if we want to let Christ live in us, we want to not nullify grace, we can't have this, I got this attitude. We need to know for sure, I don't got this. I can't be justified on my own. In direct response to these two false gospels that Paul's dealing with here, do we talk to people who come along and say, well, I'm going to supplement my faith with something else? Or, or I'm going to live my life and just sin because God wants to forgive me? We need to understand we can't have this, I got this attitude. Is that what we say? Well, I got this. I go to church all the time. And I, and I give to charity. And I've been on a short-term mission trip. And I've got one of those fish bumper stickers on my car. I'm good. I've got this. Do we understand that none of those things matter when it comes to justification? Because honestly, if we think we got this based on any of those things, then we're saying Christ died needlessly, died for nothing. If I could be justified in those things. What if we struggle with the other false gospel and we think like Kobe, I don't need any help. I can make my own way. I'll just take whatever I get that makes me happy. I'll just live for myself. I'll do what I want. And in the end, God's got to forgive me anyway. And the question Paul would ask is the same one he asked back in Galatians. Are you sure that's what you want? You're willing to trade the offer of an abundant life for something that you think will bring you joy that honestly there's no eternal joy in whatsoever. Because if we live there, what we're really saying is, I don't want to know you, God. I'm okay with learning about you, but I don't want to know you. 
I don't want to have a relationship with you. I don't want to share death and burial and resurrection with you. And what we're saying, whether we realize it or not, is, well, then I don't want to live in the freedom that you give, God. I'd rather have these things that I can hold on to. I'd rather have these things that weigh me down and tie me down. And so if someone would come to you and love you enough to boldly approach you and ask that question, hey, you want to make a trade with the God of the universe where you could give him your sinful life and receive Christ's perfection, what would you say? No, I got this. I'm good. Paul says, may it never be. We close our time today by taking communion. Lord's Supper has been instituted by God for His church. You're here today and you've accepted that trade offer. If you have a relationship with God that's by grace through faith in Jesus, then this is the ordinance that God has established where we can pause and take the time to remember what He's done for us. We can earnestly thank Him for His great love and His mercy and His grace. And, Scripture says, we're supposed to spend this time examining our own lives, taking an inventory of our heart and asking, do I really live my life fully yielded to God? Or do I sit on the throne of my own life? Do I think I'm good because I do good stuff? Or do I think, well, hey, in the end, God has to forgive me anyway, so I won't worry about abundant life. I'll just take the life that I can get on my own. See, this is the time that God has provided for us to be honest with ourselves in this process. And real honestly, we're in his presence and he knows our hearts anyway. So we can take this time to admit, I don't got this, Lord. I need you so desperately. And if you're here right now, if God's brought you to church today and you're not a Christ follower, then this is the time, honestly, that you can respond to that offer. He wants to pour grace out on you and all you have to do is receive the gift. And respond in faith. God brought you here for a reason today, if that's you, and you could take this time to begin a relationship with the God of the universe. And if you're here and you're a visitor, this is one of your first times here, the way we do communion, we've got it set up on tables around the room. And Jeff's going to come, and he's going to play some music, and you're going to have some time to respond. And so you do that, and, and then we'll come back and we'll worship together in song, and I'll make a couple of announcements. We'll be done. But let me pray the bread and the cup. Daddy, thank you for this day. Thank you for the chance to be together and open your word and learn and grow. And God, I pray that we would apply it. This is so valuable. This is so important that we understand what Paul is teaching. That if we want to truly live, then we need to be able to say, like Paul said, I've been I've been crucified with Christ. God, help us to examine our hearts, confess our sins, be right with you. God, I pray for folks who are here who don't know you, who begin a relationship with you today. Today would be the day they receive the gift. God, we love you. We give this day to you. We just ask all those things in Jesus' name. Amen.